Today's sermon is taken from Thessalonians chapters 1, verse 1 to 10. And if you remember uh, the last time we met, we spoke about the Thessalonians church. We looked at the background of the Thessalonian church. We look at the foundation of this church being laid in three weeks. We look at the makeup of this church. And we also look at the growth and work of this very young church. And I will read again 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapters 1, chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. It reads, Paul and Savinius and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give you thanks. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your works of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because of our, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and, fill, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception they had among you and how you turned away and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers from the Lord, from the wrath to come This afternoon, we want to continue with this church. We want to continue with Paul right into this church. Well, we want to look at two of the themes coming out of this letter. The first one we would I want to cover is encouragement. And if you were listening to Pastor Phil this morning speaking of God encouraging Paul, 
This is now Paul encouraging the Thessalonian church. And the second theme is the coming, the second coming of our Lord Jesus. Every person here without exception gets encouragement in one form or another. We say words like faith can move mountains. This too shall pass. You're going through a storm right now. But I know your faith will carry you through. These are words of encouragement. These words show the support of those it comes from and to give confidence to those who receive them. Paul, in writing this letter to the Thessalonian church, sees the hand of God in this church. He knows the many troubles this church faced in its inception. And about a year later, he's getting reports of the spiritual growth. But not only the spiritual growth, but the numerical growth and the works that this church is doing for God. The fruit that is being worked for God. You know as well as I do that if we are part of something that is doing well, this would be very encouraging to us. So it's easy for us to see and understand why Paul would pen these words. And he writes, we give thanks to you, to God, for all of you, continually mention you in, in our prayers, remembering before our God your works of faith and labor of love and steadfastness in hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He writes this because he is encouraging them in their walk. The attendees of this letter would have read this and be confident to continue producing fruit for God. Now I want to read two passages of scripture, one from the Old Testament and the other from the New. The first one is, be strong and courageous. Do not do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then the other. What then shall we say 
in response to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? Deuteronomy 31.6 and Romans 8.31. I want to take a pause here to digest these two passages. Now let us ask ourselves the hard questions. The questions that only I can answer, and when I say I, I'm talking about individually. The only questions that we can pose to ourselves individually, because I personally have to give an account. So we all personally have to give accounts. And the question with respect to encouragement, biblical encouragement, is what is my honest view of biblical encouragement? How do I see it? Is biblical encouragement something that I truly notice when I'm reading? Do I take biblical encouragement to heart? In asking myself these questions, I had to look and ask myself, what is biblical encouragement? And what I've found is that biblical encouragement is the vehicle that centers our faith, our thoughts, and our wills in the very source of that encouragement, and that is God himself. I want to say that again. Biblical encouragement is the vehicle that centers our faith, our thoughts, and our wills in the very source, and that is God himself. You see, God encourages us. And our faith, on our wills, is turned to him. And that's why we need to focus more on biblical encouragement. Encouragement of the world mainly focus on self. It has its place. However, it is not biblical encouragement. Because we can say things to the people we love or even a colleague at work, oh, we know you can do that. You know, you did a great job. Continue. All these things we can say. You got it. We can say these things. But biblical encouragement centers on God. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. It also finds itself, the worldly encouragement finds itself also in someone we like. Because it's hard for an enemy 
to encourage us. God has given us encouraging texts throughout the scripture so that whatever situation we find ourselves in, we are recentered to Him by these biblical encouragements. We know many believers who at this very moment is going through some grief or another because of loss or trials. And those are everyday trials where our bodies has made us accept new normals. You know, the aches and pains that we have to go through every day. Those are the new normals that we live with. For some, these life changes and these, I would say, um, trials can be just debilitating. And although we come to church and worship God, we still feel an uneasiness within. What are we to do? What are we to do when we're told that someone has lost a loved one? To give encouragement at that time doesn't work. Biblical encouragement. What are we to do when they're not or they don't want to listen to us? We are not here to minimize the hurt of anyone. But what we believe and know is that at this very moment, biblical encouragement places that believer in the source of all comfort. That is God and God alone. So when we say God would never leave you or forsake you, that's what we mean. I have met a believer who had prayed for a spouse. And this was happening for years. This prayer for a spouse was going on for a very long time. Finally, God granted a spouse. And we all know this is an answer to prayer. And after a span of about five years, the spouse died, leaving heartache and grief. And the surviving spouse sought comfort in God and was able to give God thanks for the answer of prayer for providing a spouse. And not only that, for the time that they spent together. How, much of, how many of us can do that? This is what biblical encouragement does. It centers us in 
the God that we serve. Today, it is very easy to find encouragement in Scripture. Most of us are sophisticated enough that we can use Google or whatever search engine you have. You can type in encouraging one another, which will send you, or it would pop up, those passages that commands us to encourage one another. Or you can just type in encouragement. And you'll get a whole list of passages that mention encouragement. So we are without excuse. Keep in mind that biblical encouragement is the vehicle that centers our faith and our wills in the very source of that encouragement, and that is God himself. The themes outlined have a common thread running through them. The themes of encouragement, the theme of encouragement points the believer to Christ. Likewise, the theme of the second coming points in the same direction. When we read the scriptures, we'll see that all the apostles, they are looking forward to the coming of Christ. This is a constant refrain in many of the passages of scripture, that second coming of Christ. This is a teaching by all the apostles and all who have read about the second coming of Christ. This pointing to the second coming of Christ seems to have no fade in our times. And I said seems. As Paul presents this theme of the second coming of Christ to us, I considered when was the last time I heard a sermon on the second coming of Christ? Last time I heard a sermon on the coming of our Lord. And I don't want to say, or I don't want to go so far as to say that no one is preaching it. Because I don't believe that no one or anyone, as a matter of fact, anyone can hear all sermons every day, everywhere. So someone might be preaching it. But in my opinion, I haven't heard one in a while. And that's unfortunate. 
You see, the scriptures, and we can see this in Paul's writing, he is pointing us directly to the source of our very lives. He points us with the encouragement. He points us, and that encouragement points to Jesus. He points the second coming that points us to Jesus. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul writes in Thessalonians chapters, chapter 1, verse 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, when you get a chance, uh, you can read this letter, letter in its entirety. And I'm going to make these statements, and you'll see these statements clearly when you read this letter. There are five chapters to this epistle. This first epistle contains five chapters. And each chapter, Paul brings our attention to the coming of the Lord. Each chapter, he makes that push so that we can see the direction he's taking us, pointing to the second coming of Christ. He starts in chapter 1, verse 10. And you'll see the second coming. Chapter 2, verse 19. And he speaks of the second coming. Chapter 3, verse 13. Again, and he speaks of the second coming. Chapter 4, verse 14, verse 15, sorry. And chapter 5, verse 28. I guess, I guess the sense that you feel, like I do, that this subject matter is important. Because you would have to ask, why did Paul put this so many times? And it is not an accident. It is not something that he thought of or afterthought. This was deliberate. Because when you read this first epistle, you will see that this very theme ran into the second epistle, the second letter to the Thessalonians. So clearly, this is very important. So again, we are confronted with the hard questions. And we can ask ourselves these hard questions because again, 
Every one of us has to stand before our God and give account with the body that we're in. And he's putting this here so that we can be prepared for the coming of our Lord and Jesus Christ. So I ask myself this question. What place does the second coming of our, of our Lord hold in my Christian walk? Is it in my thoughts? Do I think about it sometimes? Maybe. Do I think about it every time? Not at all. Have I allowed the cares of this world to overshadow the place of the second coming of our Lord? These are things we have to ask ourselves. And we have to be honest with ourselves. Because if we say we serve God and not obey him, then are we truly serving God? I've noticed over the years now that the politics of our lives, scripture, riches, people, and we have to ask ourselves, are these things taking the place of the second coming of Christ. And we could add something else in there and anything else that we have allowed to occupy that space. I have seen politics divide brethren who have become so entangled with a side that they become unaware that politicians hire political strategists whose job is a win for their client at all costs, regardless of human life, of human cost. The scriptures, I've seen the scriptures used to teach the casting out of demons, things contrary to what God is asking us to learn from his word, and we become caught up in works that, are not, that is not of God. Riches. I've seen believers in hot pursuit of riches so much so that if we examine the scriptures carefully, they would be classified as being greedy. And not how the world perceives them or classifies them as being ambitious. There's a very fine line when it comes to riches. There's a lot of time being spent as people. We spent analyzing, being analytical of other people without any real knowledge or even 
any way of trying to understand them. We spend a lot of time using our yardstick to measure others by and not the yardstick of God to measure ourselves by. We spend a lot of time giving worldly advice instead of godly advice. Now, let me pause here for a second. We have a right to participate in the political discourse. That is our right. We have a right to read the scripture. All these things are good within themselves. We have a right to pursue witches. All these things, again, are good within themselves. We have those rights. But nothing, nothing should take the place of the second coming of Christ. Why do I say that? This is where our faith and our hope is. These are some of the ways that can overshadow the place of the second coming of our Lord. And Paul, as you saw and as you can see, keeps reminding us of this. He keeps reminding us of the second coming of Christ. I remembered from the last sermon, the letter to the Thessalonians, I said this, is best understood by the background of this church. This church, along with all other churches at that time, became the first layer to be cast on the foundation of Christ or Lord Jesus. This first layer have provided all believers with the template in living as a disciple of Christ. In our terms, we say a flagship. But this is not a flagship. This is Christ the foundation and that those churches in those days were they were the blocks, the building blocks laid upon that foundation so that we at this time can see and learn from what was there. And as disciples, disciples of Christ, his coming again is one of the bedrocks of the believer's life faith, and hope. Again, the second coming of Christ is one of the bedrocks of the believer's faith, life, and hope. What if our lives is a reflection of these words? And I read, 
No more our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our ways to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with the saints. If we were living, this, this is a life, a blameless life, a life of holiness. And then there's no coming of Christ. We've lived this life in a devotion to Christ with the, expect the expectation of him coming and there's no return. This is a life lived in vain. So again, after we read the scriptures, as it relates to the second coming of Jesus, after we examine what we have read in the scriptures, and we have concluded that this is to be true, and after we believe and place our faith and trust in God himself, I come to find out there's no second coming. The faith of the believer is unmoored. It is violently cut away. And as believers, life lived in faith that is placed in the very source that is the giver of life. Again, and as believers, life lived in faith that is placed, our lives in faith is placed in the source, God, that is the giver of life, God. And there is no second coming. Our faith is in vain. Without the second coming, our hopes would be just would just be an exercise in fertility. And yet, all that we have done, our lives, our faith, and our hope becomes insignificant to our God as he is the God of truth. His reputation is staked here in this second coming. The reputation of our Lord and Savior is at stake here in, its sec in his second coming. We know that our God is true. We just have to look out, look around. We can see. We know that God spoke in the very beginning of the scriptures. We see that God spoke and it is. And notice what it says. It is, it not was, it is. God spoke and it is because we can still see it. He spoke of his son coming and he came. And he spoke of him coming again and we believe it. 
So we believe in the integrity of God. And that is why we place our life, our faith, and our hope in a God who cannot lie. And a God who is forever and always true. And a God who is the one and only, no rivals and no equals. My friends, I trust that we understand why Paul is writing this. The church at Thessalonica is not here anymore. And this is for us. To bring us to a place of preparedness. A place where we know that we are told in scripture that Christ is going to come like a thief in the night. And a thief in the night comes when we are sleeping. We are unprepared. It doesn't matter how many cameras you have. If a thief wants to get in, they are going to get in. The law is going to come after the fact. We're told that when Christ comes, he's coming with a big shout. We're told that when Christ comes, people will be marrying, buying, and selling. Living the daily lives that we are living right now with no regard for God and his word. So when Paul writes these encouragements, and the theme of the second coming, he's encouraging us to make sure we're prepared to meet our God and Savior. That is Christ Jesus. Father God, I thank you for allowing me to speak on your behalf. I thank you, dear Lord, for all that you have done today and all that you are going to do. I ask dear Lord that you would be merciful to us now as we go our separate ways. Give us traveling mercies. Care for each and every one of us as we depart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.